Have you ever read anything and you just didn't get it? I mean, you read the words on the page. The words are not the problem. It's just you didn't understand what the author was trying to write. Maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe it's old age. Maybe I didn't get enough sleep last night. Maybe I was distracted, which is why I took this desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza so I could get away from the distractions, from the traffic, from the people, from the stuff. I wanted to read this scroll, the scroll of Isaiah that I had just got, which is why I was pretty startled to look up and there's this guy trotting along beside me. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? I said, how can I? Unless somebody knows, unless somebody guides me. So we stop the church, I invite him up, and we get going. And he comes over, and he points to the scroll, to this text. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? And his life was taken from the earth. Is a prophet talking about himself, or is he talking about somebody else I want to know? And then, beginning from this scripture, he told me the good news about Jesus. This scripture and all of scripture, God's word, are our focus this morning. And I'd like to talk about it under two very different categories. First, God's word is bound and then is unbound. Being bound, being constrained or limited, and being unconstrained and unlimited. First, the bound. I wonder if any of you heard an echo of Luke's gospel in the reading this morning. On the Emmaus Road, Clopas and his friend are talking about current events. They're not worried about scrap chapter and verse in scripture. And Jesus attaches himself to them, just like Philip. What is this conversation he wanted to know? Well, you know the, the bulk of the story, so let's skip straight to the punchline. As they're traveling along, again, just as Philip and the Ethiopian, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Himself. Jesus is the interpretive key to Scripture. In this sense, they are bound. They cannot be rightly understood apart from Christ. Jesus is the hermeneutical key to understanding, to use a theological term, or to borrow Dr. Bartelt's metaphor, the Bible is like a big jigsaw puzzle. A 1,189-piece jigsaw puzzle, if you count every chapter as one piece, and picking up one of them can be awfully confusing. Where does it go? I mean, we've got a pagan prophet, a talking donkey, and an angel with a flaming sword. Does that go here? Let's go over here. Or how about 53 unpronounceable names? What are you going to do with that? How does that fit any place? Or dueling sacrifices on the top of a mountain? I'm not sure. But Jesus, in this metaphor, is the picture on the front of the box. Right? That's how we do jigsaw puzzles. We look at the picture and try to figure out where this is going to fit in. Looking at the front of the box, looking at Jesus, you can fit all those chapters together. For example, Exodus 12, the Passover. The night the angel of Yahweh passed over the Israelites and killed all the firstborn of Egypt. Every household was to take one lamb without blemish. Fast forward to John the Baptist standing beside the Jordan. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When the blood of that lamb, was, what did they do with it? They put it on the doorposts and the lintels. It was the sign that the angel of the Lord was to pass over. John 1. 
The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And the whole story is the salvation from the slavery of Egypt. Jesus is the solution to our slavery to sin. Or take another day, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. The one day a year that the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. There are two goats. And again, it's the blood of one of the goats, just like in Passover. But the second goat is the scapegoat. And the high priest lays his hands on this second goat, and he puts the iniquity, the sins of all the people, on the goat, and then they lead it out in the wilderness. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Peter writes in his first epistle, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then there's the high priest in this whole Day of Atonement thing. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. These two puzzle pieces, if you will, these two chapters, both point to Good Friday and the cross. In both of them, we see our sins atoned for, as we read in our epistle lesson this morning. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Which is also exactly where Philip got to start with that scroll of Isaiah, being opened to the fourth servant song. In his humiliation, justice was denied him, for his life was taken away from the earth. Judgment was executed on him for our sin. He rendered full satisfaction and atonement. All claims have been satisfied. You are redeemed. But there's more. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. No doubt Peter, Philip continued on. He talked about not just Good Friday. He went on to the empty tomb. And certainly Philip was among those who had seen and spoken with the risen Savior. He was one of the 120 on Pentecost and told of the 3,000 that were baptized no doubt the Ethiopian had heard some of this. He was just in Jerusalem. This is only a couple of months later. Look, he exclaimed, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? So they went down into the water, and he, just as you and I, came up out of the water, a new creation. This is Easter. This is resurrection. You are mine, declares the risen, incarnate word of God. God's word brings life. And salvation. God's word is bound in this sense. It's a book about and only understood in Jesus. Sometimes our cultural context can put blinders on as we read. C.S. Lewis once suggested that every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to making certain mistakes. His solution was to read contemporary and ancient authors one after the other to see the difference in perspective. We may be smart, Chad Bird suggests, but we are not as smart as we think. We may be insightful at times, but we are not as brilliant as we imagine. We have a thimble full of biblical knowledge compared to the ocean of wisdom in the works of our forefathers and foremothers in the faith. And they, too, on a good day, read the Bible through the lens of Christ. But there's a negative side 
to God's word being bound. It is a physical book. You have to open it. You have to read it. And biblical literacy is dropping at an alarming rate. And some of this is compounded by modern teaching theory that stresses method over content. Faced with an overload of information, the ability to find the right answer has become more important than knowing the right answer. Well, when it comes to the message of salvation, that's a recipe for disaster because we will never find the answer on our own. A gospel lesson drives home that point. I am the vine, Jesus says. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here is the utility of that bound word. To be connected. To have the right light bulb screwed into the socket that's connected to the wall that is the power that the Spirit brings. That we might light up. Connected to the source of life and salvation. But connection is also our segue to the unbound word of God. The Bible in the age of Google and the culture of Facebook. Dale Meyer illustrated it well, recalling a recent Thanksgiving dinner. He and Diana's wife were visiting their daughter in the Washington, D.C. area. There were a dozen relations and friends in her small condo. It's Thursday afternoon. We're watching the football game, of course. And Dale asks... When would the turkey be ready? No rush, no pressure, no answer. Until half a minute later. He said, wait a minute. This is a small place. The living room and the kitchen, it's open. Everybody heard my question. What's the delay? It's on Facebook, was the answer he got. From kitchen to living room, via cell towers and technology, and zero face to face. I mean, you've seen this happening all around, haven't you? Restaurants, every public place. More and more were plugged in and disconnected. Dale concluded there is a growing and desperate need for flesh and blood interaction. What might, what might a modern Ethiopian and a modern Philip look like? The Ethiopian is probably riding the bus. And he's got his device up. He's going to find that answer to Isaiah 53, 7 8. He's going to Google it. And what does a modern Philip look like? You and I. Well, we're walking down the streets. We got the bus plugged in. We're texting to whomever and wherever. There is absolutely zero chance of this interaction happening in our world. It's simply not going to happen if we're not watching. Flesh and blood interaction. The word must be unbound. Taken off the printed page, off the screen. It must be on my lips and your lips. We are the feet of the gospel. It's the only way it's going to work. We must be open to opportunities. The angel might say, arise and go like he did to Philip. He might not. Likely not. And Philip got a hanging curveball with that text from Isaiah 55, 53. Don't expect the same thing. More often today... Opportunity comes in crisis, on the raw edge of life. When people are more likely to reflect, to think about life, who created it, who sustained it, when a text or a tweet offers no comfort. 
can't cry on the shoulder of technology. Which is why we need to be in the word, that we may be meaningfully in their presence. The narratives of the Bible provide myriad points of contact, stories that illustrate sin and grace, faith and prayer, promise and fulfillment. Which one applies here? That's why we need to read, reflect, and retain that word. The word, God's word, brings life and salvation. The word is not just, and in this last sense, less a literally bound book with pages and bindings. Rather, it's an unbound person, flesh and blood contact, willing to ask the question, do you understand what you're reading? Or as I suggested, what are you experiencing in this or that turn of circumstances? Ethiopian is a wonderful example of individual evangelism. On the heels of the 3,000 baptized at Pentecost, the 5,000 joined after the healing of the cripple in the gate in the temple, after reading in Acts 6 that the word of the Lord continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. But salvation, life and salvation, comes individually, one soul at a time such as this Ethiopian. It comes through the bound word, scripture interpreted through the lens of Christ. And it comes through the unbound word, willing feet and mouths to share God's word. And it goes, it goes to the end of the earth. That was Jesus' final promise before he was taken up into heaven in Acts 1. And this man, this Ethiopian, was from and was going to the end of the known world at the time. And he was going with God's word, which brings life and salvation. And Luke tells us, he went on his way rejoicing. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, through life everlasting. Amen.